Mike Becker. I am the um, director of ministry here at Renovation Church. Really excited to be able to um, bring the word this morning. We're going to be looking at another psalm as we continue our series in the psalms. Uh, I have a son. His name is Cohen. And like most families with kids, we have multiple devices so that they'll never be without entertainment. Because it's really important that we supply our kids with enough entertainment to get them through their entire life. So that there's never a moment in their life that they aren't entertained. That's what it feels like anyway. Um, but Cohen, a- as he goes, we have a Nintendo Wii with a bunch of games. We have a PS4 with a bunch of games. He pretty much exclusively uses our family iPad, which he has installed games and put things on. Uh, he primarily plays Minecraft and hangs out with friends, video chat, stuff like that. We have Apple computers, Apple TV, iPhones. I don't tell you all of this to be to brag about things that we have. Um, I just want you to hear that there are multiple things that he could use um, when it's time to chill and hang and do whatever he wants to do. He's got lots of options. And so one of Cohen's friends tells him about this really cool game. And so uh, they're on video chat, and he shows them, and Cohen thinks it's, it's wicked cool. So he's like, yeah, can we get it? And I'm like, yeah, let me look it up. So we started looking at it. It looked all right. Um, he actually decided that he would pay for it, which was even better. So we went ahead, we downloaded it onto uh, one of our MacBooks, and then we determined and figured out that it doesn't work on iPhones. You have to have a PC, and we don't have a PC. We don't have anything against PCs. We just don't have a PC. Um, But it was interesting because with all of the options that Cohen had up to that point, which were totally satisfying for him, he was all in, he was fine with all of those things. All of a sudden now they kind of lost their interest. They, they weren't as cool before because there was something he couldn't play that he wanted to play. There was something he couldn't have that he wanted to have, and he saw someone that did have it, and that had a level of frustration to it, and some envy set in, which he could understand that that would happen. Uh, Cohen, or kids seem totally satisfied with what they have until they realize that one of their friends has something that they don't have, and then all of a sudden what they do have isn't as satisfying. Let's face it, this certain this certainly is not isolated to kids. Um, we could pinpoint some areas in our lives if we were um, if we were bold enough and uh, to outline some ways that we struggle with this. Some people can be happy with their job, can be totally cool with their pay until they see the job and the salary of somebody else, until somebody gets a promotion that they want, until they're overlooked and ignored, until their ideas are shot down while somebody else's are accepted and praised. Then all of a sudden they hate their job <laughs> and their pay isn't good enough. Some people are ha- can be happy with their spouse and their marriage until they encounter other people who seem to enjoy their marriage more than they do, whose wife treats them with more respect than they do, sometimes, whose husband doesn't spend as much time at the office and helps around the house a little bit more, a couple who experiences more intimacy than others. Then we begin to grow cold toward them. Maybe we begin to want to be at a different place. Some people can be happy doing the work of God, working with ministry, within ministry and local church um, until someone gets some praise that they think they deserve, until they're overlooked and not thanked at a level that they feel like they should be or could be if people notice. Especially within higher levels of leadership within church, um, sometimes we can look at other people's ministries and other people's churches and be frustrated that ours might be struggling or declining or in financial turmoil while other people are thriving and growing. And then ministry isn't worth it, and bitterness sets in. At a much more serious degree, at a much deeper level, this is going to be a major theme in our psalm this morning. 
Asaph is the author of 12 Psalms, and our psalm this morning is one of them. Now, to give you some background, um, Asaph is, uh, is in First Chronicles. He's one of the three chief musicians that David appoints to oversee Israel's choir. And he's also honored with the opportunity and the privilege um, of leading the music when David brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. In chapter 5 of First Chronicles, his sons were given musical leadership in Solomon's temple. So we see this family line that has a significant place in, the, in God's people worshiping him. And so the reason I tell you this is that it just makes me really grateful to hear somebody like this, somebody at such a high-level um, position within the church, within, within God's people, to be as vulnerable as he is. When someone in higher levels of leadership struggle with things, especially sinful things, sinful thoughts, sinful actions, doubt that leads them potentially astray, moving them away from God, we don't talk about that. We don't, we don't write songs about that. We hide that. We don't want to diminish our ministry. We don't want people to look at us and think we're less than we were before they knew that, so we hide it. That's, that's what we'd rather do. But Asaph writes Psalm 73 and exposes his struggle with envy. Now, let me be clear. This is a deep, real struggle. This isn't, I'm toying around with some ideas. You know, I wonder what it would be like. No, he is legitimately struggling, and specifically with envy of the wicked. Because it looks like they're living the high life apart from God, while he's busy doing things for God and living a life of trouble and difficulty. So let's, let's look at this, because Psalm 73 will ultimately demonstrate what can happen when a godly person loses their perspective of what's most important. Psalm 73. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs unto them, their bodies are fat and sleek, they are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their knowledge. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. This became one of my favorite parts of this verse when we get there. Loftily, they threaten, I'm sorry, their hearts overflow with folly. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them, and they find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there any knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are wicked. Always are wicked. They increase in wickedness. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands of innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you aroused yourself, you despised them as fancies. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutal and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. 
you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me in glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from me shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of your example, that I may tell of all your works. So let's dissect this section. Asaph kicks things off kind of interestingly. Uh, he kind of gives us a spoiler. He, he gets in the first verse, he says, truly God is good to those, good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And so after this intense dissatisfaction with his own life and being filled with the envy of others that seem to be living the good life um, outside of God, he comes to his senses and he says, when it says, uh, when he went into the sanctuary of God and he comes out on the other side, praising God and acknowledging his goodness and repenting of his sin. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And then he goes on and just starts to talk about um, this, this issue that he began to have, this struggle that he began to go through. And he says uh, that he goes on and humbly reveals his personal struggle that almost shipwrecked his faith. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. So after admitting that God is good, um, he admits that he almost missed God's goodness. He almost forgot about how good God really is. He's stumbling because it's dark and it lacks light. It lacks God's light. And he can't see where he's going and he's slipping off course because as he's stumbling and can't find his way, he begins to wander off the path. And this, these are the two um, figures of speech that he uses here. So right from the start, he's admitting that this is a deep struggle. I'm literally walking away from you, God. I was at the time stumbling and slipping away from you. I was being convinced that their lives, that what they were doing, what they were pursuing, what they were getting out of life was better than what I was getting. Why? He says, for I was envious and arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now later, Asaph says that he was foolish in his heart. In fact, that he says that I was like a beast toward you. What he means is I was acting like a dumb ox. Ignorant and brutal meaning he was getting to the point where he was actually questioning God's goodness. He wasn't just inquiring about, I wonder why God acts this way, or I wonder why God would do this, I wonder what God would do in this case. He wasn't inquiring about this. He was interrogating God. Why do you do this? Why do you let this happen? He almost stumbled away from God. He, almost, he was close to slipping off the path that leads to God. And man, am I, am I genuinely grateful that he gets to say these things and we get to hear him say these things. Now, why was he so envious of them? For they have no pangs on purpose. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. So he, he sees the lives of the wicked and he sees these people who seem to have it made, who have nothing to worry about, no cares in the world. Everything goes right for them. Now, these two verses kind of give us a glimpse into the sin of man. It's blind, and it's selective. Of course Asaph saw some wicked people prospering. Of course he saw some wicked people doing things and oppressing people and living violently and all the things that he's describing them as. I'm sure there were some people, but when he says all of them, that's crazy. 
Not all the people are like that. We even see this in our world today. Are there some people that get away with crime? Yes. But there are a lot of people in jail. They don't get away with it. So not everybody that's wicked, not everybody that aims to do evil gets away with it. But that's what envy does. That's what envy does. For example, let's say um, we're envious uh, of someone's level of income. That's an easy one to fix, right? Uh, What we don't factor in is a bunch of stuff. We don't factor in all the sacrifices it took for that person to get there. We just see their riches. We just see their wealth. We just see this luxurious life. But we don't factor in the years of education and the cost of that education that comes with that. We don't, um, we don't, take, we don't factor in uh, the fears that they might have of losing everything that they've acquired. We don't factor in the stress and anxiety that might come with maintaining that level of wealth. We don't, we don't uh, factor in the criticism that comes from them, from the outside of people that are judging them and looking at them and saying how they should and shouldn't live their life because of their money and what they would do if they had that kind of money. We don't factor in the responsibilities that come with this idleness. We don't factor in the fact that maybe their long hours frustrates their children. Maybe we don't factor in the parenting regrets that they have because they miss their kids' milestones and birthday parties and and sporting events and music recitals and school plays. You see, you'll never find a person that envies their children because envy is blind and it's selective. It makes us believe things that are untrue, and we ignore the negative aspects that aren't true. Now, the next set of verses, Asaph totally exaggerates and blows them way out of proportion because he's so frustrated and he's so upset with how these people are getting away. And his, in his mind, they're getting away with what they're getting away with. And he says this. He says, therefore, their, therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues strut the earth, strut through the earth. Therefore, his people will turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Old is at ease, and they increase in riches. Here's what Asaph is saying. These easy lives... Here's who's getting these easy lives. Let me tell you about them. They display pride around their neck. In other words, they're proud of their wealth. They're not hiding it. They could care less what you think about them. They clothe themselves in violence. In other words, even if what they do hurts other people, they do it anyway. They don't care how it affects you. They don't care how it affects other people. They're so powerful, there's no no harm in them for them. No one's going to come after them. They're powerful and protected. This is my favorite one. They're so fat. Their eyes bulge out of their head. They have so much food. They have so much abundance of food. And they could, if they ate it all, that their fat would get so, they would get so fat that their eyes would bulge out of their head. Their face would just get, explode. This is totally exaggerated. They gladly live out their stupidity. They scoff at God and meaning they mock him. They tempt God's people. He's even seen the people that claim to follow God being convinced to leave God to follow them because their lives look so good. They blaspheme God, claiming he doesn't know anything. What does the Most High know? He can't see what we're doing. He's not even there. And then after all this, Asaph says, why are they living in lives of luxury? Why are you letting them get away with this? This is ridiculous. In Asaph's opinion, the wicked 
weren't just getting away with their sins. They were prospering from it. Their sin was the reason they were rich. Their sin manipulated people, took advantage of others, oppressed, pushed down, flaunted their influence. And they were better off for it. Here's the question. Fuming with envy. This is the reward for living a life of sin? Count me in. And then he has a little pity party for himself and compares his life to this life, this life of ease in the midst of evil. And he says, all in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence, as if he was always innocent, right? As if he's actually clean because of what he did. It's interesting how he thinks here. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. Every morning I wake up and I'm getting stuff thrown at me. I'm having troubles and trials and tribulations for all the day long. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Verses 6 through 12 make Asaph envious of the life, the wicked life, while verses 13 through 15 make him trustful of the life he lives. Asaph is on a dangerous road here. He's getting to the point where he feels like living for God was all in vain. What do you get out of it? Why did I even bother staying pure? I've stayed pure for nothing. I've kept myself innocent for no reason. The wicked live in luxury while cursing God and tempting God's people away from him. I live a pure life and I get this trouble and difficulty every single day. What's the point? The godly suffer and the wicked triumph. That's it. All I can say at this point is holy poverty. He is pouring out his legitimate emotional frustration with what he's seeing. I think that that is an important place for us to sit for a moment. That God can handle anything that we come to him with. He's not afraid of our issues. He will set us straight. Thankfully, Asaph has opened up his heart for us so that we can see what this looks like. And then it's time for us. And I can imagine tears flowing from his frustrated and angry heart as he spends the rest of this psalm in the Lord's heart softened. We come to terms with where he'll end up. He sticks to his current way of thinking. He says, but when I thought on how to understand this, it seemed to me a weariness. Oh no, I I didn't know how to think of this yet. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terror, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Asaph, now Asaph couldn't have been talking about a physical temple because it wasn't built yet. So when he's talked about um, the sanctuary of God, this is really just used as a broad sense of simply being in God's presence, engaging with God's word. So in the presence of God, what does he do? He took the path of the wicked all the way to the end all the way into eternity. He didn't look at the now and what they get out of it now. He looked at the later, what happens later. What's the end of their life look like? Is it really worth what I think it looks like it's worth? He saw their end and it made everything worthwhile in his eyes. 
momentary wealth in the days of affliction. The way Asaph describes this is important because it's like it's like waking in a dream. They're living a dream life, a fantasy. At some point, they're going to wake up to terror. They're gonna they're not gonna just wake up and have. They're gonna wake up at the end of their life, and they're gonna wake up to terror and an eternity apart from God. What they're experiencing now is fooling them into thinking they're okay, blinding them. In light of this, Asaph's heart is repentant. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast to you. Lord, I've been an idiot. I've been an idiot. I forgot all about you. I forgot my place in this world, and I forgot your place in my life. And Asaph is saying, I've been dumb as an ox. He was duped because because of how deep his grief and bitterness went, he was depressed. And he acknowledges that this was an irrational response, but a real one, a real one. And then he goes on, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom am I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You, God, are my joy. You and you alone. In holding his right hand, he's actually saying, you take me wherever you take me, it's good. Even if there's hardship. Even if there's difficulty. Wherever you take me as you guide me with holding my right hand, as long as I'm with you, I'm good. wicked end in destruction, but the faithful end in glory. This is the polar opposite of what he's struggling with and what he saw in his life. The wicked were prosperous. The wicked were victorious. The godly were always in, uh, under heavy burden. The godly were always stricken. The godly had to give up all of this stuff only to have nothing in return. And the wicked were the ones that did everything wrong but got everything in return. But now as he pushes that out, as he looks at the end of their lives and compares that, everything comes into question. And I can't help but imagine Asaph shouting at the top of his lungs, hands raised, face towards heaven, whom have I in heaven but you? Why was I so enamored with wealth and riches that the wicked that want nothing to do with you have? Why would I give up anything? Why, why, why would I give up anything I've experienced? Because it means I can't have you. Nothing. There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Not wealth, not power, not influence, not political gain, not, rape, not riches. You, only you. And then he concludes with this. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge, the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all the other gods. Guys, this is a psalm. This psalm is a call to wake up. To wake up to the truth of where your hope is. It calls you to take the path of your life and let the line go all the way to the end. Put it under a microscope and evaluate its condition. 
Asaph rightly determines that these wicked people will wake up one day to a terrible consequence. And they're blind to it. Their current excessive lifestyle are fooling them and they're living fantasies. The psalm is a call to hit the pause button on life, go to God and engage his word and compare what it says to what you say. Compare to what it claims is valuable to what you think is valuable. To challenge you, to shape you, to transform you. If there's something that I would implore anyone listening to do as a response to the psalm, it is simply to go follow Jesus. Go to Jesus. That you would echo Asaph's words, whom have I in heaven but you, Jesus? If, and there is nothing on earth that I desi- desire besides you, Jesus. What got Asaph back on track? God. He met with God. Where is Asaph's strength found? In God. He didn't go somewhere else in the wilderness and find himself and then come present himself to God and say, look what I did for you. I got myself back in order. I was so crazy back then. I was thinking crazy things, God. Look at me now. Oh, man, I'm with you, man. I came back. I I did it all by myself. No, he went to God in the midst of his anger, in the midst of his frustration, in the midst of his breakdown. He went to God with everything on his heart as it really was and let God reshape him. I'm sure he felt humbled. I'm sure he felt horrible. I'm sure he felt guilty. I'm sure he felt all the things that someone would feel if they had those real feelings and they were really going to walk away from God because they saw the riches of the wicked and loved them too much. There is a glorious Savior. His name is Jesus Christ who died on your behalf for the forgiveness of your sins. Jesus says in uh, John 8, 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Asaph describes what he was experiencing at the beginning of this week, walking in darkness, stumbling through life, walking in darkness. And Jesus says, those that come to me, I am the light of the world, whoever follows me not walk in darkness. Christian, have the riches of this world caused you to stumble? Are you slipping off of God's path in pursuit of something else? Run to Jesus. Run to him. You know deep down in that heart of yours that what you're, pursu- what you're pursuing is garbage compared to Jesus. You know it is. You've tasted Jesus. You know who he is. And you don't have to come fake. You don't have to come phony. You don't have to pretend it's not a big deal. You come to him as you are. He's the risen Savior. He can handle your junk. If you're a follower of Christ today, with the death of Christ on your behalf on the forefront of your mind, walk out the path of God to the end of your life. Think of that on your deathbed. If you were to think of every moment from here to that moment, you were to think back on it. Are there any sacrifices that you would have made to bring God glory that you would say were done in vain? Do you regret abstaining from any of the things you abstained from in obedience to Christ? Is there, are there any hardships or difficulties that came as a direct result of your life in Christ that you would trade for a life without him? Yes. You know the answer to that as a person who is a follower of Christ. If you're listening to this and you would admit you don't follow God, you're not a follower of Christ, play out your life to the end. Will everything you're living for be worth it? 
Asaph would say, you're going to wake up one day to terror and an eternity without God. And I think the most important thing, one of the most important things we can, we can get out of this is that when we hear the truth like that, we're thankful that someone is saying things that are true. Asaph, is sim- he's, not, he's, not, um, he's not arrogantly saying, ha ha, look what you get. He's just saying, I don't want that. The truth is, there are infinite things that we can say to God. There are countless things fighting for our attention, battling for our affection. So what do we do? what we do we go to jesus god sacrificed his son so that we could be forgiven of the treason that we commit against him did you know that every single wicked person that asaph was all ticked off about that were that was getting him all worked up you know that every one of them if if they had come to god he would have accepted them he wouldn't have held their sin against them god's a forgiving god he's that's why jonah didn't even want to go to nineveh because he knew God's a forgiving God, and these people were brutal, brutally murdering people in Nineveh. And Jonah didn't want anything to do with it. He's like, no, 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 I'm not going there. I know exactly what you're going to do. I know exactly the kind of merciful, compassionate God you are. That's who God is. Check this out. 1 Timothy 4, 6 through 10 says, If you put these things before the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine which you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself as for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for that of God. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive. This is why we toil and strive. This is worth our toil and strive. Because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Whom have we let die? At our last breath, we will not regret what we possess. We won't care about wealth, riches, fame, prestige, influence, social gain, political gain. We won't care about any of that stuff. Because we're going to be in heaven forever, praising the God that we were living our lives to pursue. With this, if there's anything that you guys can see other than Jesus, I implore you stop, go to God, repent, commit your life to Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we know that our hearts are fickle, as we know that our hearts are fragile, there's so many things that can pull us away, Lord. So many things. God, I pray that those listening, including myself, God, that we would come to terms with the fact that there is nothing better to live for but you. Thank you for someone like Asaph who could easily have hidden this for, for, throughout time and we would never have known what he went through. We would never have been able to see his heart poured out like this. It is so great to be able to see a person who was in such high levels of leadership pouring out their heart in a place where most people would hide it. It's an example to us, God, that we can come to you in our weakest moments. We don't just come to you when we're strong. We don't just come to you when we've got our act together. We don't just come to you for little moments of devotional living. We come to you when life is hard. So, God, I pray for everyone listening, God, 